Hello and welcome to another episode of New Number One. I'm your host, Pierce Lydon, and uh, I know this episode is a little bit late. Thank you everybody for being patient. Um, you know, sometimes life just kind of gets in the way a little bit, and so I wasn't able to get through recording. So I know this is coming out very late, and then we'll have another episode coming out in only a couple of days. But uh, yeah, this has been a it's been quite a week. Uh, you know, uh, uh, Stan Lee died this week which has been, it's been kind of fun seeing, you know, such an outpouring of of love for the guy and, and for his creations across all of, you know, just the entire internet and everywhere I go. And, and that's been really exciting. You know, it's, it is hard to talk about Stan without talking about the things in his legacy that are not so great. But I think that something that we have to remember is that that's, true of most people uh and that while he his business practices may not have been great and while he did take advantage of artists i mean he did still in some way bring us this modern american mythology uh the things that you know we go see movies about and that we read comics about and we watch tv shows about and we get excited about on a daily basis and uh you know, these characters that inspire us in so many different ways. I, I know for myself anyway, that there's, there are very few people in my life that have not been touched by comics in some way and that have not been touched by Marvel comics, especially. And, you know, especially growing up as a kid from Queens, uh, you know, Spider-Man, the greatest Stanley creation of them all. It holds a, just a very special place in my heart, you know, and uh, I wouldn't be the person that I am, I don't think, if I if not for Spider-Man and if not for comic books. And so, you know, you know, if not for if not for Stan and all of the work that he did. And yeah, it's it, it's been it's been nice to see everybody kind of mourning together. I think that all too often there are not many things that bring us together. Of course, there's been a lot of misinformation out there about all that, like, you know, uh, you know, the, there was that whole sexual assault scandal kind of thing with his nurses that got thrown, that got kind of blown out of proportion and, and, and wasn't really true. And, and I've seen people just, just saying insane things about Stanley on the internet. And then you have Bill Maher saying, that it's comic books it's the it's comic books fault and maybe stanley in some way that donald trump got elected and my blood my blood boils most times that bill maher says things but the fact that he's considered this strong liberal voice in media is extremely frustrating to me because he's not indicative of any values that i consider good i think and, and for him to to make a statement like that, especially in the wake of Stanley's death, is just classless. And also, uh, I don't know. It's it's just nonsense to see people defending him too is also similarly nonsense. And uh, I've had to deal with some of that this week. Uh, but I also, and you know, this is part of the reason why the episodes late. I got to see. One of my favorite bands, two nights in a row, uh, Los Campesinos. Uh, if you don't listen to them, you definitely should. And uh, they do have a slight comic book connection as they do appear in Volume 2 of Phonogram. And they're referenced heavily in Volume 1 of Phonogram. 
Uh, that's by Kieran Gillen and Jamie McKelvey. But uh, as for today, we have a bunch of number ones that came out uh, last week, which was November 14th. Uh, I'm recording this on Monday the 19th. Sorry. Uh, so these are the issues that came out on November 14th. We have Firefly number one from Boom Studios. William Gibson's Alien 3 from Dark Horse. Bloodshot Rising Spirit number one from Valiant. Bitterroot from Image. Electric Warriors from DC. And Black Order from Marvel. Uncanny X-Men number one also came out, but I reviewed that for Newsarama, so I'll drop a link to that in the description for this. I don't want this episode to be super, super long since I have to start working on the next one. Uh, so we're going to jump right into it, and the first issue that we're going to do is Firefly number one. This is from Boom Studios, uh, written by Greg Pak, art by Dan McDade, colors by Marcelo Costa, and letters by Jim Campbell. And so what we get here is another very solid license outing from Greg Pak. This time he's aboard the Serenity. Uh, if you've been following along uh, with the show, you'll know we reviewed uh, James Bond 007 um, last week or two weeks ago, something like that, a couple of, a couple episodes ago. Uh, as far as Firefly, you know, I like the show. I have I don't I'm not as big a Firefly fan as as many people are, uh, but I, I see the appeal. Um, and as far as this issue, I mean, it really feels like we've just transported back to kind of a lost episode, uh, pack with a big assist from his letter. Jim Campbell does a really good job replicating Whedon's kind of quippy dialogue. Kudos to McDade on that too, for leaving room in the art for those, uh, those balloons. Uh, you know, I, I, I do kind of think that that's a little bit of a lost art. I don't think that every, I don't think that many artists are always super aware of that I, I i think they are aware of that to say that that professional artists are not aware that they need to leave room for for speech balloons is kind of insane but uh you can tell when it's when there's a little bit more intention there and especially with something that's got to be as kind of snappy uh, in terms of dialogue as this uh, it was good to see that uh, the whole creative team was able to work together to do that uh and I, I love Dan McDade. He's a really smart draftsman, and he underlines a lot of the dialogue. Again, with licensed comics, it's so important that these characters look the way that we expect them to look in terms of, you know, who these actors are and things like that. I know that's not always possible because of a million factors, mostly being legal ones. But, uh, you know, in this case, they own the license, they own the likenesses, and... Uh, and it, that's why it feels so right. You know, the, the writing can get you pretty far um, most times, but to not have to do that suspension of disbelief of, like, these characters look completely different than the characters that you've always known uh, is really great. Um, and and I think that's actually what makes licensed comics hard, too, because I think sometimes also being very devoted to those likenesses can cause the art to be a little bit stiff, but McDade does a really good job here. Uh, with his likenesses, some really good expression work. Um, and so, if you're a Firefly fan, fire, if you're a Firefly fan, uh, I think you definitely won't want to miss this one. Next up, we've got William Gibson's Alien Three Number One. This is a story by William Gibson, script and art by Johnny Christmas, colors by Tamra Bonvillain, and letters by Nate Piekos. This is a really cool idea. So this is the lost or not lost, the unproduced screenplay for Alien 3. It was written by William Gibson, uh, and it at, he actually went through two drafts, so I'm not totally sure which draft this one is from, um, because he did do a second draft that stripped out 
a bunch of stuff. I did some research on this. Uh, but, you know, one thing that I get here is that this story, as it was written, wasn't necessarily written to be a comic. And so Christmas has to do a lot of work to translate it. I mean, the good thing about film and with comics is like, you know, storyboarding is a is an essential part of making movies. And so that's sort of comics in a very basic form. But uh, I don't know. Unfortunately, that also there's a there's pa- there's a pacing thing here that I don't think makes lets this work for monthly comics. If this had been dropped as a graphic novel and it was the entire story all one time, uh, which, you know, I is obviously the plan here is that, you know, we'll get the collected edition at some point. I'm sure it'll read actually much, much, much better. Um, you know, but I think that it would have it would have been a much more satisfying read. This one leaves me a little cold. You know, you can kind of see the seams of it. You can kind of see the like, okay, we have to we have to sort of move these things around to make it so that by the end of the issue we're getting this like slight reveal or at least like slight hook to get you back for the next thing and and that beat doesn't necessarily exist in the original screenplay because you're you know, you have to sit down and watch two hours of a movie. Um, they're not concerned with, like, losing you uh, t- at the same way that, like, comic books are. Uh, and and compared to some of Dark Horse's recent Alien output, this feels like a little slight. And I can't speak to the creators that have worked on all of this, but the, the script for Gibson's Alien 3 is pretty readily available. I can't imagine that big Alien fans wouldn't have read it. Uh, but... So, so I don't know. So there's, I want a little bit more from it, but at the same time, Gibson's obviously a legend. Johnny Christmas is very talented. This definitely feels like an alien story, um, but it is, it's, it's missing sort of the, that intrinsic comic quality to it. Um, and instead does feel a little bit, a little stiff in that regard, uh, a little creaky, um, there are some really cool bits though. You know, one of the crew is attacked by a face hugger and, and, and we see them kind of come through the fog and, and, and obscured by the fog, you know, it might, it looks like it might be like a full grown xenomorph. Uh, and, and it's a really good bait and switch, but even that moment still, it feels like weirdly small, like in a movie, that would be such a big moment. And here it's like two panels in the middle of a page. You know, I, I just don't think that... Gibson's story as it was written because it wasn't meant for comics it's just not it's just not meant to be told this way and so I feel like all the pieces are here um but I'm not that they don't come together to a super satisfying whole especially for only one issue that we know is going to be out of like five or six uh shout out to Tamara Bomvillain's uh uh, colors though, because they're really good. Uh, I really, I really, really dig them. Kind of like neon, some neon greens and 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 cold blues. And I mean, this really does look like Alien. It looks right, and the story seems good to start with. But it's, you know, you'll kind of reach the end of it wanting more because you're so used to Alien stories generally, especially in film, that you get the whole thing all in one shot. So. Uh, that's kind of where I fell with William Gibson's Alien 3, number one, from Dark Horse. Next up, we got Bloodshot Rising Spirit, number one. This is from Valiant. Story by Zach Thompson and Lonnie Nadler. Script by Kevin Griveaux. 
Pencils by Ken Lashley, finishes by Ryan Wynn with Brian uh, Tees and Oliver Borges, colors by Diego Rodriguez, letters by Simon Boland, who has a lot of names to be working on a comic book. Bloodshot. So Bloodshot's going to be a movie starring Vin Diesel at some point. Um, and Valiant, since they've been, you know, they got bought out by that company, they seem to be, uh, that, that I think it's like a Chinese company, uh, seems to be going really heavy on origin stories. And so we get this kind of uh, Total Recall-esque uh, version of uh, Bloodshot's origin. Uh, and there's some cool stuff here. I mean, uh, there's a bit where he gets a bunch of bullets riddled into his back, and, and then uh, they're like, oh, you're healing already. And he like is like, hold on a second. And he like spits out all the bullets, you know, because his body absorbed them, and he spits them out. Uh, that's kind of cool. Uh, you know, the, there's a really good pedigree here. A, a lot of the names that I mentioned should be recognizable to you. Thompson and Nadler are uh, working on current X-Men books. Kevin Griveau created uh, Blue Marvel for Marvel and also created uh, Underworld, most notably. Uh, Ken Lashley has worked on X-Men comics for a long time, basically as long as I've been alive on and off in some way. And uh, But, you know, the full package here, again, it's the same thing where, like, the full package doesn't really come together. I, I, I called it Total Recall-esque, and that's because it's pretty much that. Um, you get to the end of this book and you're like, ah, I don't really know that I needed this story and I'm not really sure what the story's trying to say. Um, it doesn't really tell you anything you don't already know about uh, about Bloodshot. And, and because of the way it's presented in that sort of implanted memories way, where, you know, we're kind of at a loss right now as to knowing what exactly is real. Uh, so I don't think... I don't know. Again, it, this is just one of those things where, like, pieces are in front of you. You can kind of see what they are. A lot of the names on this should be reason enough to pick up this book. But the full package itself is just not coming together. Uh, interestingly, Valiant said this is the highest-selling uh, Bloodshot comic of the new Valiant era since 2012 when they relaunched. So that's really interesting, and I'm really happy for everybody in that regard. As far as whether or not I'm going to check on issue two, I definitely will not. I will probably wait for this one to be a trade um, because it just doesn't have that pull for me to go uh, month to month with it. Next up, we've got Bitterroot number one from Image Comics. Uh, this is my pick of the week. I had a lot of fun with this book. This is from creators David F. Walker, Chuck Brown, and Sanford Green with colors by Rico Renzi and Sanford Green. And letters by Clayton Cowell. So it's uh, 1920s. It's Harlem. Uh, in the back matter, they call this an ethno-gothic story, which is a pretty apt description. Uh, so Bitterroot has a very breezy setup. If you've got a problem with monsters or demons or some other evil, you go see the Sangarize. And you've likely read a book like this, uh, you know, in the past. Like, the influences of comics like Hellboy and Atomic Robo and Skull Kickers are all kind of here. It's it's a little, it's kind of goofy and kind of funny. Uh, it's got these supernatural elements. Um, but there's an intention here that's m extremely important. So the cast is primarily black, which, as we found out in the back matter, centers the book in a really different way. The monsters fought by these characters, Berg, Blink, Cullen, Ford, and Maetta, aren't just mindless ghouls, but they're meant to be hate and racism made flesh. And so that seems a little bit on the nose, but Brown and Walker's script flows really, really well, placing an emphasis on establishing character and character dynamics before overall plot. And so, I mean, we just get to spend time with these characters because we know the sort of like demon hunting plot line, right? Again, we've seen this kind of before, but 
we don't know who these characters are and we don't know why we're supposed to care about them. And, and we get some really solid character dynamic stuff to just kind of kick us off. Uh, I think Berg is probably my favorite uh, to start with. And, and also, too, I mean, the thing about it is that Sanford Green is such an incredible character designer that these characters are just wonderful. I mean, the art is just so great. His action choreography is sublime. Uh, Rico Renzi assists on colors, and there are some, just the two of them are doing this crazy, crazy greens and purples that color this whole world. Uh, this is just a great looking book. It's a great, uh, a great introduction. I can't wait to read more. The fact that it's got this like extra layer and you know it's the kind of thing that oh, I think a lot of people will be like well I didn't need to know that from the get-go right like I would have figured that out and it's like yeah but I think it's important for these creators to just say outright hey here's what we're doing because I don't know we're in a weird era now of 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 comics where even when you tell people exactly what you're doing they'll tell you that you're not for some reason and and I don't know where that came from or, or, or why it happens, but I I love that uh, that they just come right out of the gate and they say, this is what this is. Here you go. You know, the understanding of the stakes of this world, because we don't get too much that happens in this issue, um, still don't hinder our ability to fall in love with these characters. The larger concept behind the book doesn't hinder our ability to fall in love with these characters. And if anything, it kind of makes things a little bit stronger because now I'm like, all right, well, what does that mean? What does that mean for these characters? What does that mean for these characters, especially in this time, in this setting? Um, you know, I have questions in a good way where I, I don't feel like these questions should have been answered yet, but I'm excited to find the answers as we move forward. Um, it's so easy to be all the way in on this book. Uh, and so that's why it is the new number one pick of the week. So we only have two more books today. Again, like I said, this is going to be a short, short episode um, just so that we could get it kind of out the door and get working on next week's episode. Uh Next up, we got Electric Warriors number one from DC, written by Steve Orlando, art by Travel Foreman, colors by Hi-Fi, letters by Travis Lanham. This is a wild book. It's like set in the far future. Uh, the original Electric Warriors was uh, an 18-issue, I guess, I guess it was an 18-issue run. It's not really, it's kind of bigger than, than a maxi series at that point. Uh, so this is a new mini-series. It'll only be, I think, six issues. And uh, it's set in the year 2735, and the world has been, you know, so toxic. It's been ruined, and uh, they're the, they're all these uh, the electric warriors, these champions of of all of these planets. And uh, it starts out with a lion man fighting a boy who we are to understand as our hero. And this is, I mean, I I really love, I really love when Steve Orlando kind of digs into forgotten concepts of the DC universe. Um, I, I believe the original uh, Electric Warriors was actually out of continuity. Um, so, you know, it didn't really need to tie back to things as much. But here, you know, I'm sure that some of the pitch had to be like, hey, I can make this relevant uh, in a really cool way. So even it's even though it's a really far future, and of course things can change, and of course like maybe none of this happens if something changes in the timeline, um, it does still have these really good callbacks. I mean, we start 
with callbacks to the regular DCU only a few pages in uh, once we meet uh, the city of Krakonis on the at the abyssal plain and we see these octopus people uh, because you know as this as the planet has become more uh, as we've gone on through history like all these animals are now um, more like people I suppose uh, and I love the idea of like bringing a concept like this that was outside of the DCU and like bringing it home, right? By just peppering it with small DC details. Uh, Travel Foreman's on art here and he's doing some really solid work. We don't get to see like the full force of his like action prowess, um, but we do get to see some like stuff that's pretty brutal. Um, and uh, I'm, so that makes me really excited to see like this, this tournament that they'll have like moving forward. Um, but other than that, I mean, this is like, I guess in a in a way a little bit similar to uh, to Foreman's work on Animal Man. There's like a lot of there's a lot of family drama stuff that's going on in this issue, and uh, to to kind of set us up, uh, we find out there are these twins and their brothers, and I mean of course they're brothers, but uh, you know one of them has been chosen to be the Electric Warrior for Earth, and one of them has not, and uh, obviously a little switcheroo is going to happen. Um, because he doesn't really believe in this thing that they're doing. Um, and he wants to save his brother because he believes his brother is better than him. Uh, so he kind of puts himself in harm's way instead. And, uh, you know, there's even, yeah, I mean, just on the whole, like there's just a lot of really cool stuff going on. The realization of the octopus tribe's world is really cool. They, they speak through something called like light speak. And so Travis Lanham has to do these like crazy, these crazy multicolored uh, speech balloons with like these gradients in them that are really interesting. And they change. I, I'm assuming that they change kind of based on, based on emotion. Uh, because we see them, we see two characters who's, their their bubbles change like uh, significantly uh, throughout their conversations, and so I don't think it's uh, completely just all over the place in terms of like or just like, just arbitrary. Um, but I'm excited to find out more about that. One thing that's crazy, we get Jokerfish, uh, the Blissfish, um, which is such a fun little. Oh, it's such like a fun, fun little detail to throw in, and like the the world is so toxic now that people are immune to the joker toxin in these fish and so they call them bliss fish and uh they eat them and it's not a big deal and they have like joker smiles and it's really funny and uh yeah i don't know this book's kind of wild it, you know it kind of throws in some big like superman stuff and you can catch some batman and wonder woman references as well uh it gets really weird when these two get turned into these electric warriors and go through electrogenesis. Um, but even the, then, like, their final uh, designs are really cool, too. They've got these, like, almost kind of, like, you know, uh, Navarro, Ian Navarro has, like, this, like, almost new godsy kind of gear on his face, you know, and then they get, then he gets, uh, he gets Superman's cape, which is really cool. And we kind of just kind of keep moving towards, we keep moving more and more towards the end. And it's like not totally clear how this is going to go. If it's going to be something more than this like tournament, it doesn't seem like it will be until we get a final reveal, reveal that's really cool. And we get to see a character that is at least somewhat familiar or should be to you. 
and and that's what I mean. Orlando does a really good job with that. You know, these characters are their world is so weird, but we, you know, we, you know, we feel like we know them well enough and we can understand sort of the stakes at play, um, which is really good for a first issue. And, uh, and then he just kind of ups that DC universe connection. And that's the thing that's going to make readers who are, I think a little bit on the fence, like, well, why should I care about this? Like, it's not, I don't even know what electric warriors is. It's some weird book from like 30 years ago. Um, they haven't done anything with it as far as I know since then, like, what is this? And it's like, ah, listen, it's the far future and we're bringing in all these concepts. Uh, I guess in a way it's almost like, uh, in a way it's almost like DC 1 million in terms of showing, uh, showing what might be one day, which is cool. So. Uh, and then the last book that we're going to cover today, like I said, Uncanny X-Men did come out, but I'm going to just throw a link to that in the description. Um, but the last book we're going to cover today from Marvel is Black Order Number 1. This is by writer Derek Landy, art by Philip Tan, uh, and inks by Mark Dearis, Guillermo Ortega, and LeBeau Underwood, colors by J. David Ramos, and letters by Clayton Cowell. So I'm a big fan of the Black Order as a concept. They're definitely the best thing that Hickman came up with when he did Infinity. And they've been a great addition to the Marvel U. I think that's evident, especially from their inclusion in the movies now, and that they're kind of, you know, they have action figures, I guess, and, and that they're much more household names, I think, than anybody thought they were going to be. I remember that the big, the big complaint with Hickman's Avengers run was like, this doesn't look anything like the Avengers that we're seeing in the movies. And then now... You know, it's literally his his some of his work is just appearing on the screen. So good for him. And that's really cool. Uh, but my favorite has always been Corvus Glaive. I don't know who, how anybody could have another one. I, I mean, I guess you could. But Corvus Glaive, I think, is the coolest one. And Derek Landy uses him as our entry point character into this. And so we get some narration from him. And uh, the the thing about it, I didn't I had I really had a had low expectations for this book i was like ah, i don't know if we really need the black order to have their own comic even if it's only a miniseries but i jumped into this one and the script's actually pretty funny you know the the thanos is gone the black order has to kind of figure out what they're doing now so they're sort of taking jobs and doing things and there's lots of violence and killing and, and through it all corvus glaive is wondering when he got so depressed uh and and he wonders if he's funny you know, he's having a bit of a crisis of confidence and, and uh, you know, his day job's not really doing it for him anymore, which is funny because, like, it's like all of this narration is going on. Some of these conversations are going on while uh, people are being, you know, I guess the Black Order are brutally murdering people, which doesn't sound like it should be funny, but it, it's, it's, it's some, some solid black comedy there. Uh, and this issue weirdly does a lot to humanize the Black Order. I guess mostly Corvus Glaive since he's sort of the focus character. And I, I didn't need that necessarily. I just always thought they were cool. But fleshing them out so that we know that they're sort of a moving part within the Marvel Universe even without Thanos is is pretty welcome. Uh, you know, and, and Corvus Glaive repeatedly trying to be funny. You know, at some point he says like, kill them with violence and uh i i couldn't stop thinking of the superboy prime line uh i'll kill you to death uh when i heard that uh, which i guess is also a reference to rocky um uh, rocky four i'm pretty sure 
but yeah, I, I weirdly had a lot of fun with this. I, I think it's, uh, I think it's good when you get to see a, a sort of unexpected path taken with some of these characters. I think it would have been really easy to just sort of go, go kind of dark and have them find, like have them be these very like arch villains in a way that they almost come off as a little bit one note. Uh, but instead we get the, that archness and that like we are the black order you know uh the midnight slaughter the cull obsidian the five dreadlords that that kind of like big villain monologuing along with like corvus glaive being like you know i think i possess a subtle wit that may pass unnoticed there are occasions where an arch of an eyebrow is all that's required you know and and uh proxima midnight just being like i shall endeavor to pay more attention to your eyebrows in the future like again blood flying everywhere you know um it's it's pretty fun the thing that i'm a little down on is the art i like philip tan generally but when you've got a team of inkers like that it's usually not a good sign and it's definitely not here there's a real lack of consistency in the line work and i think that's partly just because tan has such a busy style i mean i occasionally when he gets to just draw the characters and and they get a little bit of space um we see this kind of on the first splash page on the second page of the book but uh where we get to see corvus glaive and the rest of the black order you know i think that the book looks good and i think that tan's got a decent eye for like action choreography and stuff and he knows how to lay a book out problem is that there's so many lines in some of his work and then you've got three different inkers who are all doing their own things on it and trying to make it trying to pull it together as much as possible um but it's just not super consistent uh you know all those lines do a lot of the heavy lifting when we're talking about uh when we're talking about action you know it, that really works in communicating action and we really get a really good sense of that and there's a ton of action in this book i mean there's a ton of stuff going on the problem is that when we get slightly more static shots with all these lines, we're not getting really good, solid, bl like, black inks that bring good contrast. So then the coloring suffers, you know, things end up looking a little bit muddy on those, some of those character designs as well. When we don't have a clear understanding of, like, light source and where shadows should be when it's just kind of, like, presented on the page and, like, here it is. Um so that's that's the kind of thing that leaves me a little cold. I, I do think, though, that it's probably good that the book looks, I guess, like a pretty standard action-y Marvel book. Um, again, if you know Philip Tan's work, I think you kind of know what you're getting. because it does. It, but it does kind of, like, hide the fact that this script is, uh, is, is so funny. And uh, I had a really good time with The Black Order, number one. It was a solid, a very solid issue. I think that the, you know, sort of the plotting is okay. I think it works for what it's supposed to be. Um, and I'm excited to see it more as like an exploration of what the Black Order will become. This feels like a little bit like a transitional book to see where they're going to go next. Um, but that's always cool. That's always cool. That means that the characters are giving, are being given room to grow uh, and change. And especially as 
you know, we have another movie with Thanos in it coming out. Uh, I'm sure things in the Marvel Universe and comics will change as well. Um, so we'll see what happens. But uh, yeah, so those are the books for, again, November 14th. Wanted to keep this episode a little bit short just so that I can get started on the next one. Sorry this one is so late. My pick of the week, again, is Bitterroot by David F. Walker, Chuck Brown, and Sanford Green. If you can run to the store and get that, do so. I believe the first printing sold out already, and it's going back to second printing. Uh, I think that this is the kind of book that, I mean, I think we'll see like a movie deal and all that stuff kind of flying out of it soon enough, and uh, you'll probably want to be in on it before all your friends are. Um, and I'm really just Sanford Green art. Sanford Green art, honestly, just please buy any book Sanford Green draws. At, at the end of the day, I think that that's, uh, that's a pretty safe bet. So, you know, um, RIP Stan Lee. This has been another episode of New Number One. As always, I'm your host, Pierce Lydon. Uh, you can find us on Stitcher and iTunes or Apple Podcasts and, uh, and Google Play and all those. Uh, overcast and all those uh, different podcatchers if you can leave us a review that would be really great it helps the show it helps people find us Uh, hopefully you're giving us a good review but if it's a bad one i'll accept the criticism as well you can always email us at uh, new number one cast at gmail.com and follow us on twitter at new number one pod you can follow me on twitter personally at pe lightning and uh yeah So we'll be back next week with another episode, or I guess in only a couple days, with another episode of New Number One, the only podcast that covers the only consistency in comics, new number one issues. Thanks for listening. Bye now.